Welcome to another episode of the Plant-Based Canada podcast. Join us as we talk to the experts to explore the field of nutritional sciences and how our food choices impact our health and the environment. My name is Stephanie Nishi, and today I am joined by the esteemed Dr. David Jenkins to talk about plant-based diets and nutritional sciences research. Dr. David Jenkins is a university professor and Canada Research Chair in the Departments of Nutritional Sciences and Medicine at the University of Toronto. He is also a staff physician in the Division of Endocrinology and Metabolism, the Director of the Clinical Nutrition and Risk Factor Modification Center, and a scientist in the Lee Cacheng Knowledge Institute at St. Michael's Hospital, which is part of Unity Health Toronto. He was educated at Oxford University, where he obtained his medical degree and doctorate of science. He is a fellow of the Royal College of Physicians of London and of the Royal College of Physicians of Canada. He has served on committees in Canada and the United States that formulated nutritional guidelines for the treatment of diabetes and recommendations for fiber and macronutrient intake under the joint U.S.-Canada DRI system of the National Academy of Sciences which provides the set of reference values used to plan and assess nutrient intakes of healthy people. He also served as a member of Agriculture Canada's Science Advisory Board on the future direction of Canada's agriculture and agricultural research. He has spent much time working with the food industry to develop products for the supermarket shelf and, for example, helped to initiate a major Canadian supermarket line of heart-healthy foods. His research area is the use of diet in the prevention and treatment of hyperlipidemia and diabetes. He has over 350 original publications on these and related topics. His team was the first to define and explore the concept of the glycemic index of foods and demonstrate the breadth of metabolic effects of viscous soluble fiber, including blood glucose and cholesterol lowering effects. His group developed the cholesterol lowering concept of the dietary portfolio which we'll talk more about during this interview, so stay tuned. And this dietary portfolio has been entered into guidelines in many jurisdictions, including the Canadian Cardiovascular Society. Dr. Jenkins believes in the therapeutic value of plant-based diets and that diets have to be environmentally sustainable. Well, welcome, Dr. Jenkins. Thank you so much for joining the Plant-Based Canada podcast today. Um, I know many people may already be familiar with you and your work, and we'll chat more about that as we get into things. But first, I want to say welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Steph. To get things started, could you share how your plant-based journey began? What got you into it in the first place? Well, I suppose... I suppose it it sort of happened. I was intending to go into medicine. It seemed to me that um, the food approach was was a sensible one. I was early involved in dietary fibre and I got to know Dennis Burkett, who was one of the great founders of the modern dietary fibre area, and uh, Hugh Trowell, who was was also very interested in diabetes. And they were interested in metabolic disease as well as colonic disease. And I was lucky enough to be uh, to be uh, a protege of Dr. Uh, Francis Avery Jones, who's one of the fathers of British gastroenterology. And he introduced me to the Medical Research Council's um, gastroenterology unit, clinical gastroenterology unit. And they were actually, they were actually commissioned, as it were, 
to look into dietary fiber and what its health consequences were. So I ended up working with people who were working in the dietary fiber field. And I was interested in the metabolic side. And so I was, um, I, I, after graduation from medical school, that's, that's what I did. <laughs> it sounds like you had some pretty influential mentors that inspired you. Could you talk a little bit more well, about that? Well, I think, that? yes. I mean, I, I, I my, my, um, my tutor at Oxford in, in, it was, was basically a, a gastrointestinal physiologist and medic um, called Dennis Parsons, who was great. I shouldn't have got into med school, um, but he sort of, I went to see him before I went up to, to college and he sort of got me in through the back door, which was unusual in those days. But anyway, that was great. I'm not going to argue about that. Anyway, I got there and then he taught me conceptually and he also taught me a lot of gastrointestinal physiology. And that was interesting. And I found that particularly interesting. And then when I went and did my clinical work, um, Francis Avery Jones, who was the father of British gastroenterology, I was on his ward and he taught me. So um, I'd have been taught by a gastroenterologist. physiologist. I had a mentor who was a, uh, a gastroenterologist. And the Medical Research Council became interested because Dennis Burkett had come back from Africa and said, you've got to eat fibre. So the Medical Research Council said, okay, you're the guy who's discovered Burkitt's lymphoma, so you must know what you're talking about. Um, so let's go and look at dietary fiber. So that's how the whole thing started. And um, I then got sort of seven years of funding um, with no grants to write. I only had to go and see the director, Tom Rones, and just say, could we have some more cash for this? If I did write a grant and get it, that was sort of, you know, that was extra icing on the cake, as it were, well, perhaps I shouldn't use that expression, but anyway, it was certainly extra. So I got seven years of being able to, to do all the work that you would like to do as a young research worker. And I must say, that was a tremendous thing. I, it's like saying to you, here you are, Steph, here's seven years of funding, uh, get on with whatever you think should be done in this particular area. It was a great idea, I think. And, and um, I think those of us who were working in that particular sphere, benefited greatly from it. And so that's where the ideas came that food, um, nutrition, plant food, especially because that's the fiber component, these may be important. And then interestingly enough, um, another connection from Toronto, um, Bob Good um, was the actual, was one of my, my colleagues working in the same lab doing his PhD. That was before I qualified in medicine. But anyway, Bob said, you know, you ought to be working on plant-based diets because that'll lower serum cholesterol. And I was, I was already, uh, I've been a vegetarian since I was 11. So I thought that'd be a good idea. So why not let's look at plant-based diets and it did lower serum cholesterol, absolutely. So I took that idea with me as we went forward into the dietary fiber story. And I said, well, maybe that's one of the components of plant foods, which lowers serum cholesterol. And, um, I was very lucky because Charmian Newton was in the in the laboratory in the hospital in the hospital. She was a resident, senior resident in the hospital um, in the, on the gastroenterology unit, and um, she trained in Paris where they'd been looking at viscous fibers. So she introduced me to viscous fibers, which lowered cholesterol quite magnificently. She actually joined and was one of the one of the participants of the study, um, and and we found that it it worked. So that was tremendous. And uh, that was, again, supporting one on a plant-based approach. But I didn't actually really think of the plant-based approach 
until much later. That was when we were already in Toronto, as you know. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, we're looking at all these plant components, plant proteins, plant fats. Plant. Why don't we actually, well, actually, my wife, Alexandra, said, why don't you put it all together and call it a portfolio? So we did after the financial portfolio and said, well, that's what diets are. They are a sort of combination of many foods. And so why not make them a combination of many plant foods and look at what they, they do. And obviously there was a lot of interest there already. I mean, people have been looking at plant foods and finding that they were they were very useful in lowering cholesterol. And there were a number of studies that had come out, the Oxford Epic and others, and, and obviously the, the uh, Seventh-day Adventist work in California, um, looking at uh, plant-based diets, more, more vegetarian diets, and showing how good they were. Uh, even uh, Frank Sachs from Harvard in his early days had looked at um, vegetarian diets and shown that they were good for lowering lipid levels. So, I mean, it, it wasn't a big sort of, it wasn't a big leap forward, if you know what I mean. It was just a, a quiet evolution into plant-based diets. And then, I mean, I was becoming, just as I think we all are, you are too, becoming more aware of um, the environmental impacts that we were having on the planet. And, um, and that, that agriculture was perhaps producing um, maybe 17 or more percent, uh, or 30% for agriculture possibly, but 70% even from just beef, the beef industry. Um, so one realized that there were, there were also other imperatives to look for diets uh, that were healthy for human beings so that we stopped, as it were, eating the planet and started being more conservation-minded. And then things like Eat Lancet have come out and so many other things too. And even the New England Journal has come out saying that their residents have to know about environmental impacts. So, I mean, I think we're, we're going there and I think it's, it's now become mainstream. Interestingly, when I, was, when I was young, even when I was young in Oxford as a vegetarian, it was very difficult to find a health food restaurant where you could eat. Um, go back to Oxford now, you find the place is just loaded with it. So um, I think, and, and Toronto, of course, is a wonderful example of, um, of where vegan diets have taken off, both for health and for environmental reasons, and just because people think it's a good idea. So that I do think that that's going, there's a big push in the future that goes along with Health Canada's um, uh, suggestion that we should eat more plant foods and especially plant sources of protein. That's been echoed since 2019, 2009, sorry, 2009 in Sweden, where they first started linking environment to what we eat. Um, so it's now become mainstream because all the countries across the world, even China, is suggesting that they should, that Chinese people should cut their meat intake by 50%. Ask Chinese people to cut 50% of the pork out of their diet, and you could have another revolution. But anyway. <laughs> That's how it is. So I do think that it's it's something that people are beginning to think more about. And I think now, rather than thinking, what is the best diet that we should eat? I think the question, and I, people will object to me saying this, but I think the real question is, what is the sort of diet which is best for the planet, which is also healthy for us? I think it can't be the other way around, because as David Katz always says, what's the point of an excellent diet on a dead planet? So, um, you know, I think that um, we, we have to go that way. And I, I, would, I would say that, you know, if you're, if you're in a room of people, the sickest person in the room is the planet. So um, I think we've got to 
make a lot of efforts in that direction. And I think there's a big call for nutritionists to work carefully in this area and make sure that they get to plant-based diets, which are the best, which are optimized, and the food industry to reduce things accordingly. So, I mean, there may be processings that are useful and processings that are not useful. So I think all these things are now the ways that we should be exploring things. And I think that's where, that's where I think the future lies. I feel like you touched on so many important topics in what you just said. Um, there's a number of them that I have questions about, and I'm sure our listeners do. But one in particular, I want to cycle back to the portfolio dietary pattern that you talked about that you and your wife, Dr. Alexandra Jenkins, um, you mentioned developed and came up with. And I feel like that fits in with the concept that you were talking about is what is a healthy dietary pattern for our planet? Could you tell us a little bit more about the portfolio dietary pattern? Um, what well, exactly it is? Well, what we were doing there, we, it's, it's, if you like, it's an, it's an extreme type of diet, but it's an extreme type of diet targeted for people with raised cholesterol levels, of which there are a number. I mean, if we're saying that 50% um, of men over 50 should be taking a statin and women postmenopausally, 50% should be taking statin. We're really talking about large numbers and large numbers of people who are taking a drug which is not a promoting drug. It's a very useful drug, but it's an inhibitory drug. It's an HMG-CoA reductase inhibitor. In other words, it's trying to stop us from doing things. So why don't we just try and do that with our diet? Can we not do it with our diet? That was the question we asked. And we know that you can get lots of small advantages by eating nuts, by eating oats and barley and sticky fibers. These sort of things are useful because what they do is they lower cholesterol. They lower it by about 5% or 6% or 7%, but, but whatever it is, is relatively small. So we thought, well, why not let's take these components and put them all together and perhaps we'll get a 30% reduction. And so we did. Uh, we got 10% reduction from a, a sort of... Uh, a low saturated fat, low cholesterol diet. And then by adding some oats and barley, some viscous fibers, some soy type proteins, legume proteins, by eating nuts, by adding some plant cereal margarines, plant cereals are in oils and uh, leafy vegetables, naturally, but this, these are concentrated, you can get, you can or could get them anyway in margarines. And other things, you can get them in chewing gum, I think, at, at health food stores. But, um, we thought we'd put all these things together um, and see what we got. And we were surprised we got what we predicted. But you never expect to get what you predict. Do you know what I mean? It doesn't always work out that way. But this time it did, it worked out that way. And we got what we predicted, which is a, almost a 30% reduction in LDL cholesterol over a one month period in people who were given the foods to eat. That was the important thing. We gave them all the food they had to eat for a month. But still, I mean, it worked. So it showed it worked. And when we did it in, in a study across Canada, in a six-month study, we got half the reduction, but we got also half the compliance. So there was half the adherence to the diet, and we got about half the effect. So that, that, that's what one would expect. But even so, sort of 13 14 15% reductions in LDL cholesterol are jolly good and will help people to stay healthy, we feel, we feel. Obviously that's not the only thing, it's, it's just one of many things you've got to 
keep your weight under control. You've got to take exercise. You've got to have plenty of sleep and other things that people are not really getting enough of nowadays. But if you do those things as part of your diet, this is, this is another help. It falls into the whole lifestyle approach that yes, many people talk about. Absolutely. And it kind of goes into, you talked earlier about this quiet evolution of plant-based dietary patterns and how there's been this growth in available products. Do you think that that has helped with people to be able to be compliant to these types of dietary patterns or how has that changed things? Tremendously important. I think it's, it's, I think that the culture change is tremendously important. I'm glad you asked that question because if we looked at the study across Canada, the people who lived in Vancouver, as opposed to the people who lived in Winnipeg, got twice the reduction in cholesterol and were much more compliant. Well, I, I wasn't sure why, but anyway, Amy and Wendy, my daughter, said, look, you better go and look at Happy Cow because that will tell you how many, how many vegetarian restaurants there are and how many health food stores there are. And you can work it out per 100,000 of the population. So I did. And to our surprise, uh, there were about sort of uh, 20 or 23 um, health food stores and restaurants in Vancouver per 100,000. And there were only about three or four in Vancouver per 100,000. And in Vancouver, they got the big reduction. In, in Winnipeg, they got a much less reduction. Still a useful reduction, but much less. So, I mean, we just, we put two and two together and made four. We may be wrong, it should have been five. But I mean, you know, I think you're, you're right from, from, from the perspective as we see it, from our data, it does seem that when you've got things available, people eat them. But it's also when you've got people who are more prepared, who are living outdoors, who are more healthy, who want to eat more healthily, then there is a demand for these sort of things. So it's a, it's a sort of, it's a cyclical process and it's difficult to say which part of the cycle you've got to enhance. It's a total cycle. Once you've got it working, it works well. And just for our listeners, Happy Cow is a website where you can find different um, vegetarian or vegan-friendly restaurants available across mm-hmm. the country. And in, in different countries. Mm-hmm. You can go to, to Rome. We, we went to Rome for a meeting and we, had, we looked at Happy Cow. We immediately went to a vegan restaurant, some of the best we've been to. Yeah, so no, it'll take you on many places in the planet. So that's I feel I should, I should subscribe to them or, or something because they've done such a good job. (laughs) Well, by telling people about them here, that's one way to go about it. Is there anything else that you think people, if they're just starting to transition into a plant-based dietary pattern, what are some of the first steps that you think would be helpful for them to know or do? Well, I must say, first of all, be simple at home and introduce foods for a meal or try things, try dishes. But I think one of the very useful things, and certainly in places like Toronto, uh, if you can get a chance to go to a good vegetarian or vegan periphery restaurant and just look at their menu, go there a few times and see how they cook things, how they prepare things, how they make things tasty. I think these are are very useful. So I think that um, if you get experience, that's useful. I think that... um, the physicians for responsible medicine, PCRM, in Washington are very good. They have a whole load of literature that, that, that's helpful for people. And there are a lot of very good vegetarian and vegan 
cookbooks and, and, and cooking books. I know I should, I should have the, the names of them all down in front of me, <clears throat> but um, I, I don't, I can, but certainly I can give them to you. And if anyone contacts you or contacts me, um, I can give them the, the names of the, of the cookbooks, which are useful. I think we're putting those together, I think it's very useful. That would be fantastic. And we can, if um, that's made available, we can put it in the show notes for our listeners. Yeah. And I yeah. know that your daughters also wrote a cookbook based on the research of the plant-based yes, dietary you. pattern. Absolutely right. Yes, she did for, for cholesterol lowering the dietary portfolio. Thank you, De- Steph, for reminding me. Amy, Wendy. Um, uh, Wendy was the, the, the primary author. Wendy, Amy was very close behind. And then my wife, I acted as backup, and my sister also contributed some recipes. So <laughs> it became a sort of family affair, and that, that's that, that's good. So that that's been outed by Elsevier, yes, Academic Press. So that's my real conflict of interest, if you like. I, I, and thank you for reminding me. I should declare my conflict of interest, but I should also declare the conflict. <laughs> Otherwise, I get in trouble. <laughs> I know that conflict of interest is one of those things that it's, I feel like it's a catch 22 in research, because if you follow a plant based diet, but then you research a plant based diet, how does that work? Can you speak to that a little bit? Yes, no, I think it's terrible. I I think it's, it's awful, because that's why I didn't work. I was inhibited. I was inhibited by working on plant based diets, because I felt that plant based eating was the right thing to do. And that now seems to be like a stupid uh, contradiction. You don't do it. So if I'd invested in cigarettes and alcohol, I'd be okay. I could talk as much as you like. Do you know what I mean? Uh, I could say, well, that's fine. I, you know, the cigarettes and alcohol, great things. Go, go, go and use them. I, I invested in them. But I, I don't talk about them. I don't do research on them. So I'm not conflicted, which is weird. So you can, you can, I can invest. I, mean, I, know, I know people are going to get, get cross with me. But I think we've got to probably get away from fossil fuels. I, I think that's, that's the, the message. But if I was to invest heavily in fossil fuels, again, I'd have no conflict of interest. It's a tough situation to be in because you research something and then you find out the benefits. So it's something that you want to follow. But then if you follow it, you're considered to be conflicted. So Correct. What... Correct. What's the answer? Yes. I think the answer is, I, truly, I think the answer was the answer that we used to have. You declare your conflict of interest. I truly believe that it's a good thing for people to have conflicts of interest. Because if, you, if you're not conflicted, you've never got truly involved in anything. So I think it's very important we would have conflicts of interest and please declare them. Um, and I, we are so paranoid about financial conflicts of interest that we fail to think that many people have got intellectual conflicts of interest which are not declared and that you can't tell. And for example, if I just don't like the theories about saturated fat, I just don't like them, then I will always shape all my publications to be against saturated fat. And I will make a big story about it. I mean, I think that saturated fat, if it comes from animal sources, is not that good. I think it comes from plant sources along with the plant food, then that may be a quite different situation. But what I'm saying is that if I was, if I was, if I was to, be, to invest myself um, in non-saturated fat, I could then say all anything to do with saturated fat 
is wrong. Nobody would know of my conflict of interest, but I've got it there. So I think it's much more important to declare it. And I think people should declare their intellectual conflicts of interest as well as their financial ones. And I honestly believe that for most people, the financial conflict of interest is minor. For example, I mean, I may be, I may be asked, as I have been on one or two occasions, for a particular group like the, the Strawberry Commission in, in uh, California to go and talk on strawberries somewhere. And I think strawberries are really good food. They say, well, you've you received $1,000 for going and speaking on this. So isn't that going to sort of make you feel that strawberries are the real? No, it doesn't. It really has very little difference at all. The fact that you get paid for doing something doesn't mean to say that you're then going to back it. Um, hopefully, it means that you'll still be open to the ideas if they're good scientific ideas. And whether they're on, on strawberries, whether they're on peanuts, whether it's on whatever it's on, your ideas will be, will be driven. And what you say will, to the best of your ability, to be driven by what your scientific understanding is of the situation. And possibly the environmental impacts may be some of the big things that, 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 that shape the scientific way that you think. And to say that people should, because they're intellectually conflicted, by saving the environment, by the way they behave, would be nonsense. The fact that I recycle, um, I've got a conflict of interest in recycling because I have this environmental thing, is again, would, would be nonsense. So it sounds like transparency is the key word here, absolutely. just being yeah, transparent. Yeah, and I think so. And then just when we research, what we do as researchers is show what the data presents. And I'm not saying that, that you can't be biased, and you will be. And obviously one does things with bias, and there's unconscious bias, and there are lots of biases. But, but I think we do the best we can. Um, we, we, we declare what we've got, and then people can say, well, do they sound honest? Because we know that that's their view. Are they making a balanced opinion or judgment? Mm-hmm. Where do you think the research world is going in regards to plant-based dietary components and patterns and foods, or is it even still focusing on the foods and components, or is it branching out into another area? I think you're right. It's all the above. I think that they're, they're branching out into new forms. I mean, we, we've got those who are looking to replace all foods. We've got novel forms of egg, which are vegan. We've got a lot of dairy, milks and yogurts and and cheeses, which are vegetarian, vegan, and very tasty. Uh, we've got burgers, as you know, the, the, the two brown boys uh, putting out the impossible. And the, um, so, I mean, I think that, and beyond meat, um, I think that these are, these are new wave ways of looking at what I would call very useful transition foods. I mean, I would, I would like people still to be able to enjoy lentil soups and these sort of things, which I think are, are really enjoyable, but it's not everyone's immediate choice. And so I think we, we, if they can make these transition foods that get people taking more plant-based diets, this is a very good move in the right direction from the planet's point of view. And I think if they can make the foods as healthy as they can, while still being competitive with the real food, 
that's a good thing. And it's a big challenge, but I think it's a challenge they're rising to. Thank you. Yes, that is a really big challenge. And like you said, there seems to be more products and more innovations coming out into the market. I was wondering, what are some things that you're most looking forward to in regards to how people are changing their lifestyles, whether it's in regards to changes for the better of the environment, for their own health? Is there anything that has sparked your interest of the past year? I think the environment is going to be the thing that we will be judged on by the next generation, the generation after that, and many generations to come. And I think if we make a mess of the environment, we will be held in far less respect than we even have the Victorians classed in. We always use it. The Victorians are terrible people. They send children down the mines, and that was it. We thought they were terrible people because they were just disgraceful. I think when when our children and grandchildren look at the world that we've left them, uh, devoid of animal species, with a lot of viruses and a lot of problems, with degradation, with microplastics in everything, uh, with polluted water, um, I don't think we're going to get a we're not going to get an A grade. We're certainly we do. We're just going to be bright people who had a good life. Many of us don't have a good life, and many people who are living on this planet have a miserable life. But to a very large extent, it's made, been made more miserable um, by the habits that we've developed, and especially the habits we've developed in the West, because these are the habits that everyone else wants, unfortunately. And we've, we've, we've led the way in the wrong direction. Speaking of habits, if you were to advise or recommend a person to try to change one habit, um, is there one that you, stands out to you? I know it's difficult, but is there anything that kind of comes front of mind? I, I still I do believe that trying to select a healthy vegan diet is probably the one thing that ordinary citizens can do. And obviously I'm not going to sit, so it doesn't matter if I fly everywhere and, and, and use, use a car that's a gas guzzler. No, I'm not saying that, but assuming, assuming that you're making sort of modest changes that everyone's making, what is the one radical change that you can make? That would be the radical change that I would suggest. Is it because it's going to immediately improve the environment? No, but I think it's going to set a train of thinking, and that's important. I think it's going to influence the people around you. And when they notice what you're doing, people will ask, why are you eating that? So I think this is where you get the biggest ripple effect uh, in terms of uh, planetary awareness. And I think it's something that also has a potentially strong humanitarian uh, theme in it which I think will be recognized and appreciated by the younger generation. I really like that image of the ripple effect, that there's multiple different actions that we could be doing, but just making that first change can lead to so many more. If there was any final thoughts that you'd like to leave our listeners with or anything that you wish you could have said during this time? Well, I want to say just how much I appreciate the fact that you, Steph, and, and all those with you are doing these sorts of things to try and make the, the big issues of our age um, more, more readily available to people and more discussed. I think this is tremendous. 
that's that's really what I've got to say. Thank you very much. And we hope to be able to continue the discussion and continue bringing awareness and action to things as well. And you're doing so much great work in that. So we really appreciate it. So thank you very much, Dr. Jenkins. Well done. Thank you. This episode was hosted by myself, Stephanie Nishi, and Clint Stamatovich is our audio engineer. This podcast featured royalty-free music from bensound.com. A very special thanks to our guest, Dr. David Jenkins, for speaking with us and sharing his insights. And of course, thank you for listening. The Plant-Based Canada podcast is an initiative of the group Plant-Based Canada, which aims to educate the public and health professionals on the evidence-based benefits of plant-based whole food nutrition for individual and planetary health. To learn more about the show, visit our website at www.plantbasedcanada.org and stay up to date by following us on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook at Plant-Based Canada. Until next time.